turn in your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1. And, uh, are you on, Mike? I think so. Yep. Yeah. Got it. All right. Revelation chapter 1. We'll have a word of prayer here in just a second as we get started. And I've got a handout for you as well. this morning. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to mostly be looking just at verse 20 this morning, and this is really in preparation for the, the next two chapters, um, some things I think that are going to be very important to consider and uh, kind of get down pat, if you want to say, before we get into uh, the seven individual letters in chapters two and three to the seven churches. Actually, last week's was foundational to that as well, and this week's also. So let's go ahead and we'll have a word of prayer as we get started this morning. We're not going to read a long passage of scripture, so uh, there might be some verses that I ask some uh, volunteers to go to and read here as we're going, but Father, this morning as we uh, gather together here for this uh, Sunday school hour, this Bible study hour, I pray that you'd help us as we look into your word, and uh, Father, that we would, uh, you know, just uh, be able to uh, give you our attention and your word and, and uh, help us to be able to uh, set aside distractions and so on so we can uh, just, again, focus on your word, what uh, your word says. I pray that you would help us to have clarity of thought and all that as well this morning. I pray too the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and help us to see your truth this morning in your word. And then, Father, also for the very, uh, just uh, as many that are sick and not able to be here today, Father, we pray that you would uh, work in each, each and every one of those uh, individuals' lives yes. and that uh, the various needs only you can meet would be met this morning. We pray that you would uh, raise them back up to good health very soon. And uh, again, just please have your will and way in each of our hearts today, in this hour, and then of course in the service to follow as well. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. All right. In Revelation so far, we've just been in chapter one for several weeks here. Uh, and, and really, there's a number of things that uh, this first chapter lays out for us that um, I think are very important and foundational to really the rest of the book, and foundational for us in, in being able to uh, follow and understand the rest of the book. And of course, one of those being, and we, we looked at this a number of weeks back, is the what you could call self-revealed outline that's given to us in Revelation by the Lord Jesus to John of the book itself. Remember there in, uh, chapter, in verse 19 of chapter 1, after John sees this great vision of the Lord Jesus, and obviously, I mean, that, that just, 
you really stop and think about that and pay a lot of attention to what John saw. And there's so much there. Uh, and we, we only spent probably one week looking at that vision particularly. But so much that really that has to tell us about the Lord Jesus and who he is. Um, but remember, after that, of course, uh, John fell at his feet as dead. And then Jesus touches him, lays his right hand on him. And uh, interestingly enough, too, when you look at the Gospels, how many times, I, I read this in, in reading something and from studying for uh, these lessons in Revelation, it's interesting how many times in the Gospels it says that Jesus touched a person, or he laid his hand on somebody, and did something specifically for them to meet their need. Uh, and he does that here with John as well. John, you know, basically sees this awesome vision, falls down as like he's dead. All right, Jesus touches him with his, his specifies, uh, his right hand uh, there in verse 17, and told him, don't fear, don't be afraid. It's interesting how many times you see that response as well. It's fine, don't be afraid. But uh, then Jesus goes on and, and tells him a couple things that obviously John probably, you could say, knew. All right, he says, I need it. And was dead. John knew that. And behold, I mean, that was one of the whole purposes of John being an apostle. The apostles were uh, among several things. They were specially called witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Men that had personally interacted with Christ before and after his resurrection so that they could personally attest to the fact, the validity, I mean, and just everything about it. Uh, that Christ bodily rose from the dead. And that he, had, you know, he, he ate in front of them. That's when the spirit you know, ate. Uh, they were able to touch, to handle him. He had a body. It was a different kind of body in the sense it was, it was immortal at that point. It was a glorified body, but it was a body, a physical body. Uh, and and they, they were able to interact with that. And, and John uh, knew that Jesus had died, and he's alive, and he says, I'm alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death, speaking of some things about his authority there and so on. But then in verse 19, he tells him to write the things that he had seen. Now again, when you keep that in mind of the, the flow of the book of Revelation, obviously that's speaking of this, this vision, all right? Because at this point in the, in the I'm going to say the conversation in everything, that's what John had seen, this. Now, of course, that would also uh, incorporate uh, the introduction to the book, the words that are written before John records the vision. He probably saw the vision, and then John, Jesus tells him to write this vision, and, of course, then he, he tells him what to write as far as the introduction to the churches, all this kind of stuff, and then he says, write... Uh, Write those things that you've seen, and then the things which are the present things, and the things which shall be hereafter. So in other words, uh, as we have got a little glimpse at, when you look at chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, you can see clearly that's where the things that are going to be hereafter, that's where they begin to be shown John. Clearly, there. And we'll talk about that again later. But this... this uh, Part here where he says, write the things which are, all right, just the things which are present. And obviously, 
present in that day and really still present today even in the scope of the book of Revelation. And that is this, uh, the matters of the Lord's churches. At that point in history and still today, the Lord is working in and through uh, his churches in this world. And you could say it in a generic sense as it's used several times in the Bible. He's working through his New Testament church, right? Which is... You know, at least at this point in time, is consistent of multitudes, innumerable for, from our vantage point, of individual churches, assemblies throughout the last couple thousand years, throughout the entire world, right? Uh, but nonetheless, in in the in the scope of that, in a generic sense, that's all the Lord's church, right? Um, and and again, even today. Um, and so he says to write these things. Now, verse 20 serves, I, I think you could look at it this way, as kind of a transition between the things that John had seen, because he mentions in verse 20, or what's, what's mentioned in verse 20, is an explanation of some of what John had seen in that vision of the Lord Jesus, but as well as it lays some groundwork for the next two chapters, the seven letters that are getting ready to be dictated, if you want to say, from Jesus to John here as well. There's an explanation uh, given here, and that's what we want to focus on mostly this morning here. And again, we've, I've entitled the lesson, as you look at the handout, one of the slides up this morning, but seven letters to seven churches. Now, we'll speak more about this in time later as well, but the number seven obviously is, is a very prominent number in the book of Revelation. Uh, I, at the, off the top of my head, I don't know how many times it occurs, all right, but the number seven is the most prominent number, really, in the book of Revelation. The number seven, just across the board in the Bible, speaks of completion, all right? Uh, I mean, think of it this way, all right? Um, Seven begin. We're, we're, we're introduced to the number seven in the book of Genesis, right? Genesis 1 begins with God's creative acts, the creation week, right? And it's interesting that God said, uh, well, on day four, he creates certain heavenly bodies, right? Uh, really, we probably should say all the heavenly bodies, of course. Stars, planets, moons, and so on. But for the Earth's from the for the Earth's perspective, all right, we're here on the Earth. We have a sun, which is really a star as we understand it today, and we have a moon. And those two, uh, among other things, those two heavenly bodies uh, regulate time here on Earth, don't they? The day and night, and then of course the cycle. Of the you know the Earth traveling around the Sun is a year and so on and and although our calendar doesn't necessarily operate this way, it the Hebrew calendar always operated this way. But basically, a month was a lunar cycle. So uh, the you know the didn't think, but the the process of the new moon you know all the way up to the full moon and then the waning. Back and so on, but that's that's basically a, uh, a period of time that's considered a lunar cycle, and so and that's what the Hebrew month goes by. Our months are a little bit different, and so on. But um, point being is, how do we know what a week is? If you think about that, there's no indication in the sky as to what makes a week, right? 
It's something that God established verbally, if you want to say, you know, through his and, and the example of his creation activities and so on. And then the seventh day he rests, that constitutes the first week. And you know, God basically says from that on, all right, there's seven days, seven days to a week. So every seven days, there's a new week, right? But uh, seven is an important number is what I'm getting at. Right? You see that from the beginning of the Bible, seven is, is important. And seven is a complete, that's a complete week, seven days. All right? The, the eighth day, as you look at that in the Bible, is always a new beginning. All right? It's the beginning of something else. And, and so uh, seven is a, is a number of completion. And we, we see here in this vision that John sees of the Lord Jesus, remember, according to verse 13, or 12, I should say, as John turns to see, remember he says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and then he hears this great voice, right? And he turns to see the voice. So it's as if, I, I envision it, now the Bible doesn't explicitly state this, okay? So this is my thinking on this, but I envision it as John is, you know, like on his knees, and you know, probably, or you know, he's, he's praying. He's he's and he hears behind him, so behind, above him, this voice, and he turns to see. All right, so he's then looking up toward the voice up, you say to heaven, and then verse twelve says, "And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks." All right. That's an interesting thing, all right? And there's a lot about that. We talked some more about that last week. I, again, I believe that was a miraculous thing that John could even see these candlesticks. If you think about the, the, the center of attention of that vision was the Lord Jesus himself and how much he shined. I think there's reasons why he saw those. God intended for him to see those because he's revealing to John, uh, you know, if you want to say, or even reiterating, it's not that this would be a new concept at this point in the New Testament, but it's it's obviously driving home the point that God's intention in this day is that Jesus is seen through his churches. The churches are God's instrument in this world. Uh, and churches, of course, are made up of individual Christians, but the churches are the body that, that God chooses to work through in this day in which we live. So we see seven golden candlesticks, and then in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. And then in that description of, of Jesus here, down in verse 16, it says, and he had in his right hand seven stars. Right? And out of his mouth went the sharp two-edged sword. So these two things now are enumerated for us down in verse 20. And it, as far as the outline, and, and the way I have this outline in your, in your handout is, Mystery solved, all right? Uh, because that's the way it's worded here. In verse 20, he says, the mystery of the seven stars. This is Jesus talking to John here in verse 20. The mystery. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, I should say, when you see the word mystery, at least very typically it's talking about, okay, this is something that before that time, before the time that it was first introduced in whatever passage you're talking about in the New Testament. Before that time, it was something that was hidden. It was something that was not revealed. Something that was a mystery in that sense. Okay, It's not like a, 
a mystery that you know we're leaving clues and you have to go on this hunt and chase for this. But it's the idea of something that had not been previously revealed, but is now being revealed. And the whole concept of the New Testament church and so on is that way to the Old Testament. It's a mystery to the Old Testament. It's never talked about in the Old Testament. It's entirely a New Testament concept. So when you read books, by the way, and you see many, many writers that will say, they're talking about Old Testament Israel, you know, and they'll say the church, you know, and, and that's very common, very common, but that's not Bible, okay? The church is only a New Testament concept, a New Testament organism, but it's a mystery to the Old Testament. You see that in the book of Ephesians and others that Paul uses that terminology concerning the church because it was something that was only revealed at that point on. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Here, Jesus is using the same terminology to John. He says the mystery of the seven stars. Why was it a mystery? Because obviously when John saw it, he didn't understand what it meant, what it was signifying. So Jesus is explaining that to him here. In verse 20. So he's revealing. That's the idea. He's making known what wasn't known before. All right. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. And I'm going to tell you what these are. He says, uh, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. All right. So how can we know what those candlesticks that John saw, beginning in verse 12, how can we know what those are? If it weren't for verse 20 and Jesus telling us what those are, we would be up to our own conjecture on what those are, right? I mean, we'd be wondering and whatever. And by the way, most of the book of Revelation is exactly this way. There's a lot of symbolic things used in the book of Revelation, but for the most part, they're explained in the book itself, for the most part. Others that aren't explained in the book of Revelation can be found in other places of the Bible, right, to help us understand that. So it's not a matter of we have to uh, allegorize everything and, you know, make up some spiritual meaning, so to speak, for everything. When I say that, I'm not being derogatory toward the spirit or anything, I hope you understand, but I mean, you know, because most of the time, it's clearly taught us somewhere what that is, all right? And so Jesus is telling John, right here, I'm going I'm to tell you what those symbolic things meant. The candlesticks represent the churches. And the churches, all right, in a generic sense, yes, all the churches, but in this context, specifically the seven churches that are being talked about in the book of Revelation. Right? And then he says the seven stars that Jesus was seen as having in his hand. This is an interesting thing. If you think about this, when we think of stars and all this, John saw Jesus holding seven stars. Has anybody ever been to the Creation Museum and seen that? Uh, I think it was called The Created Cosmos. was one of the planetarium shows that they had. It was the one about the stars. and just It, it basically showed the great expanse space and the stars. I remember and then there's this, you, you see that one and then they because they're, they're, they're showing it in such a way that it kind of puts uh, to scale so to speak, you know, like our sun compared to some of these other stars and, and things like that. 
I remember there's this one star that they had on there called Betelgeuse, right? I mean, it was like, it took up the whole screen, you know, when they're showing it in comparison to, to other things. And uh, I'm pretty sure that was the one with that name. I don't remember the picture, but in my mind, <coughs> it's been a while ago. But uh, I mean, when you think of that, and John sees Jesus holding stars, I mean, just to me, it just again just puts the enormity of the power of Jesus in perspective. He's the whole space, everything. I mean, uh, Colossians says that by him all things consist. He's the one holding everything together. He's the one that created it. He's the one that holds it all together and makes things operate the way they do and do what they do. But John sees Jesus with seven stars. I mean, most people reading that today, they probably picture like, you know, like little stars that you would get on your chart, you know, at school, these little stick-on stars, you know, something like that. I mean, I would think that it's fair to say that's probably a modern invention. I don't think those things existed in, in the first century when John saw this. So when John sees this and describes seeing seven stars, it's like the stars that you would see in outer space. I mean, that kind of a, 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 a resemblance, I mean, and, and, and so on. But um, so he sees these, and Jesus explains what these are. That's the whole point of this, all right? Mystery solved, all right? Many things are communicated with symbols in this blessed book, but the Lord gives the clues and keys to proper understanding of these things as well, all right? So, uh, and I already mentioned the rest of that there. So the seven candlesticks, we talked about this last week. I'm going to be very brief on this because when I get to the next part. But back in verse 12, when John turned to see the Lord speaking with him, he saw seven golden candlesticks. He then sees the Lord Jesus in the midst of these candlesticks. Now, candlesticks, again, that, that terminology is more of a, a, a 17th century, a 1600 kind of word, all right? It's not so much uh, wax candles, you know, with the wick that you would like with a match. It's more the idea of an a, a oil-filled lamp that would have a wick, of course, to burn, but... That was more in the first century, the kind of candle or light that was used, all right? But he sees these lamps stands, all right? And uh, something that a lamp would be put on, placed on. Now, it's possible the lamps stands had lamps on them themselves. That's not specified as such here, but uh, that's, that's the idea of what these are. So he says these seven candlesticks are the seven churches, all right? Now, again, we I'm not going to go through the rest of that, what's on the outline there right now. We, we talked pretty much about that last week, but the New Testament church is important. It's God's institution for today, and uh, the New Testament church is an assembly properly constituted. In other words, it's an assembly of scripturally baptized believers that are constituted together to do the Lord's work, all right? That's, that's kind of a Pretty simplistic definition, I think, for that. All right, so let's move on to the seven stars. You see the seven candlesticks, the seven stars. In Christ's right hand are the seven stars. These are identified in verse 20 as the angels of the seven churches. Now, this is an interesting concept. If you think of the angels of the churches, all right? So moving on to Roman numeral number two in the outline, let's talk about that, all right? The angels of the churches. Now, each of these that were introduced here to seven 
angels of the seven churches. And then notice in each one of these letters as they start, if you're there in verse 20, in your Bible, the next verse is verse 1 of chapter 2, right? So that's just our, our first example. But you see this repeated these seven times in these seven letters. How does it start? Notice, unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, of Ephesus here, write these things, right? It, it doesn't say unto the church of Ephesus. It says unto the angel of the church at Ephesus. And this is a matter that is uh, of quite a bit of debate in reality uh, among, um, I want to say, Bible students and those that write about it and so on. But what is this? Angels of the churches, all right? I'm going to give you a few ideas, and I'll, I'll tell you what my position is on this. But um, just consider some things here as we, as we look at this, all right? Um, the first thing that you probably automatically think of is what when you think of the word angel? Some bright, appearing, supernatural, you know, angelic being from heaven. And many times that's what the word angel is meaning in the Bible, all right? Um, but think of this, right? The word angel itself, the basic idea of the word angel is a messenger, right? So think of it this way. An angel that is sent from heaven by God to tell somebody something. They are doing what? They're carrying a message. They're presenting a message. All right? So the basic idea of the word that's translated angel here is, again, messenger. And uh, you can, well, I shouldn't say you can look up any kind of uh uh, source and, and find that true, but in the sources that I have consulted, yes, okay, that is true. You can look at, for instance, uh, uh, well, I even brought this along. For sake of the English word, angel, all right, Webster's 1828 dictionary. This angel, usually pronounced angel, but some other stuff here anyway, and then he has Greek, a messenger to tell or to announce, all right? But, um, and he gives seven meanings here, all right? First one is literally a messenger, one employed to communicate news or information from one person to another at a distance. But appropriately, number two, a spirit or a spiritual intelligent being employed by God to communicate his will to man. Hence, angels are ministers of God, ministering spirits. Hebrews 1 uses that term, right? In a bad, and then number three, in a bad sense, an evil spirit, as the angel of the bottomless pit is mentioned in your Bible, right? And, of course, many evil spirits are talked about uh, in the Bible. Uh, number four, he gives, as a definition here, Christ, the mediator and head of the church, Revelation chapter 10. Now, there is an angel referenced in, in Revelation chapter 10. Now, whether or not that's Christ, we'll talk about that uh, later. I might disagree with Mr. Webster there on that. But number five, a minister of the gospel who is an ambassador of God. All right, and here he references Revelation 2 and 3. And then number six, any being whom God employs to execute his judgments. And there he references Revelation chapter 16. 
Again, and then number seven, definition of the word angel in Webster's 1828 Dictionary. It says, in the style of love, a very beautiful person. All right? So in other words, guys, to you, your wife might be an angel. Right? But, but. Amen. Gave the opportunity. Anyway, uh, but just reminding us, okay, the word has a variety, you know, the word angel for every word that I know of, by the way, there's a variety, you know, there's a range of meaning to words. You know, one word doesn't always mean one specific thing, all right? So context, of course, uh, of that's important. Now, if you look at other other sources, and I'm going to have to hurry to get to what all I want to get to, but in Strong's, for instance, right? In, in the Old Testament word, translated angel, the first use of it there in Genesis chapter 16, Strong's gives this meaning, messenger, representative, and then in specific instances of that, a messenger, an angel, a theophanic angel, and so on. Anyway, uh, in the New Testament, again, uh, Strong's would give the definition of a messenger, an envoy, one who is sent, an angel, a messenger of God. All right? The uh, a lexicon that I prefer to use for, uh, for defining Greek words is these two definitions. One is a human messenger serving as an envoy, an envoy, one who is sent. Number two, a transcendent, transcendent power who carries out various missions or tasks. In other words, a messenger, an angel from heaven. All right? That idea. Now, I have them written here, but let's, uh, if somebody wants to, would somebody care to look up Matthew chapter 11 and read verse 10? All right? Let Pastor get that one. And then, John, if you're still in the volunteering mode, all right, Luke chapter 7, verse 24, and then one other one. All right, Brother AJ, James chapter 2, verse 25. James 2, 25. These are all uses. You'll see uh, some, I'll mention the words here when we get to them, but. Every one of these verses has the Greek word that's, that's typically, well, I say typically, that is often <laughs> translated angel, but the word angel is, isn't in English in any one of these instances. What, and my point is I'm trying to demonstrate that the word has more meaning than a person, you know, or an angelic being here in heaven. All right, so uh, Matthew 11.10. Since for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. All right, now in that context, does everybody get the gist of that? Jesus, I believe, is the one speaking there, and he's talking about whom? Can you tell? John the Baptist, right? And when Jesus speaks there, he uses the word angelos, the Greek word, but it's translated, what do you think it is in that verse? Messenger, all right, which is really, again, the basic idea of it. But Keep that in mind that John the Baptist then is referred to as an angel, if I can put it that way, all right? A messenger. Why? Because he was sent with a specific message to give people. He fills the criteria, if you want to say, of a, an angel, a messenger, all right? Um, and then that, that same thing is repeated in Mark and Luke as well. If you want to look at it later, Mark 1 and 2, Luke 7, 27. All right, uh, referring to John there. But um, 
And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? All right, so there Jesus is speaking again uh, at the end of the verse. The first part says, when the messengers of John departed. Again, I think it would be the idea of the angels of John. There, it's not talking about John himself, but men that John sent to Jesus to ask him a question. In that context, John is, you know, he's in prison, right? He sends men to Jesus to ask him something. And the Bible calls them angels or messengers, right? And then James chapter 2, verse 25. All right, there... In James, he's, he's referring back to the Old Testament. They're at Jericho when, remember, two, and in the Old Testament, they're called what? Spies were sent and went into Jericho. Rahab the, the harlot hides them, remember? And then she makes a, a, a pact, a covenant with them, and then with, you know, in that way with the nation of Israel. Um, but uh, here they're called the messengers referring to those men, but it's, it's the same word, angelos, uh, referring to them. So again, my point being, I'm just trying to show you that the word has more of a meaning in the New Testament than just these beings from heaven that are sent, okay? Now, uh, look this up later. I believe it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 19. I think it's the verse. I read it this morning earlier just to double check, but there, that's the, the scenario where Gabriel, the angel, is sent from God to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. Remember that scenario there? And in that specific incident, all right, he, he gives John, or Zacharias, excuse me, a message, and Zacharias is like, not necessarily believing it right away, remember, and then he says, okay, you're going to be done. You're going to be able to talk, speak, Till, till after baby's born. But anyway, but there, Gabriel reiterates this. He says, I am, after, after Zechariah responds, questioning this, what he's telling him, he says, again, I think it's verse 19, Gabriel says to, to Zacharias, uh, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. That's an interesting concept. But then he says, and am sent to you. So in other words, right there, it, ex it very explicitly gives the whole point of what an angel is. These, even the, whether it's a human in the various contexts of the New Testament, or an angelic being as we think about it, right? The whole point is, Gabriel was a, was a being who he has access to, he's there in heaven, Stay, kind of, I, I, I look at it this way. He's like standing at the ready for God to tell him something. He goes, gives that message, right? And, and, and so on. But that's exactly what an angel is. Whether it's a heavenly angel, so to speak, or a human. It's a messenger. Gabriel said that's what he did. That's what his purpose, his role was, was to communicate and give a message. I'm here to bring you some mail, so to speak. Right? He's a, he's a mailman. But uh, 
And, and so he's in there, right? So I, I, just getting back to this, all right? So when you see the word, the word has a variety of meaning. It doesn't necessarily mean an angelic being, right? The number two point here that I want to make is there's no indication in the scripture apart from here if an angelic being is meant is what is meant here in Revelation 2 and 3, these angels of the churches. Apart from that, there's nowhere else in the in the New Testament that speaks of anything of any connection that angels have with churches, right? With the Lord's churches. Now in Hebrews it talks about uh, angels being ministering spirits sent forth to minister, and Hebrews 1.14 says, minister uh, on behalf of how's it worded there? Let me look at it again. Um, Ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, my point with that is, okay, if angels have a connection with human beings here, the only connection I see in the New Testament of that is, is more on an individual basis, right? Not that angels are ever seen as having responsibility with or over churches. Now, some writers, by the way, they, they, they always insert this here, all right? In the Old Testament, it is true. You see the angel Michael, the only angel called an archangel, by the way. <clears throat> but uh, uh, he is shown as having a direct connection with the nation of Israel. Um, now, again, whether or not does God hold Michael responsible for Israel, you know, for Israel's response to God and so on, that is never seen to be the case in uh, the Old Testament. But it's like Michael fights spiritual battles in the spiritual realm defending Israel. That is seen in the book of Daniel. Right? Now, um, the reason I'm wording it that way is, okay, is... When you read these chapters, these, whoever it is at this point, that's addressed as the angels of these churches, they're addressed as if they have, well, number one, that they are part of the church. And number two, that they are, they have responsibility for what the church is doing. And, you know, the condition, if you want to say, the state of the church. I mean, that is clearly implied. That they have a responsibility in this church, all right? And again, I see nothing in the New Testament that indicates that angels have responsibility in the Lord's churches. I mean, that's just, I don't see that, all right? So again, number three here, I think it makes most sense that these are men here, because that is clearly, the word's clearly used with men in the Bible, that these are men uh, and not spiritual angelic beings because the Lord is obviously holding them responsible, at least to a degree, for the state of these churches. Uh, and then fourth thing on the list there, I don't think it's a lack of faith to recognize these angels as being human messengers. Right? They, these angels are addressed as though they have a part of, they are part of, and that they have a responsibility with these churches, right? It's just the Lord's giving them directly this message. And again, remember the whole point back in chapter 1? The blessing that was pronounced in verse 3 of chapter 1? 
Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear and heed. Right? Same concept here with each one of these individual letters. There's somebody that's being singled out here by God that takes this message and then is to communicate it to the churches, to that that individual church in, in each individual situation. Does that, does that make sense? What, what are we getting at there? All right, so, uh, I mean, if it is some kind of angelic being, obviously God has the right to do that, okay? But I just don't see anything else in the New Testament that would align with that being the case. It makes most sense, I believe, that these are human beings here. It is true that angelic beings have a prominence in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that later on. I mean, there's, there's a lot of that. Now, there's a lot of human prominence in the book of Revelation, too. Okay, So both, both things can kind of be argued there uh, in that, from that standpoint. But so the significance, moving on here, and i got to hurry. The significance of these angels, letter B there, under Roman numeral, point B, all right, the significance of these angels. So if these are human beings, as I personally believe they are, all right, um, notice again, in each one of these cases, the letters addressed, not, I mean, it is to the church, okay, but yet it's specifically addressed in each case to the angel of the church, to an individual, right, that obviously is given responsibility in that situation. And it says, under the angel, and then you'll notice that throughout the letter, like for instance, we're, we're right close here to the letter to the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 2. I know, this is Jesus speaking, again, to that angel of the church, right? But to the church as a whole, but he says, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. Thy, remember the T pronouns are what? Singular the Y pronouns, ye, you, are plural. That's one of the good benefits of the KJV and the you know, so-called archaic pronouns, all right? It does, in modern English, we just say you. Am I talking about one you or multiple yous, you know? There's other things that we use to kind of, you know, of in the South, they say y'all. So that is a good, good thing there, although I've heard people... They're called one individual, y'all, too. But uh, so it's not good Southern grammar either. But, uh, but anyway, and uh, think about that. I think, okay, in, in other places, New York, they say use, right? In Pittsburgh area, Western Pennsylvania, they say humans. Uh, I mean, you know, yins, I would say. But uh, I mean, there's there's various ways, but you, you see what I'm saying. In modern English, you is the, is the appropriate or as far as grammar, word, but it, it, the context, other things have to determine whether you're saying you singular or you plural. But in our in the KJV, the T pronouns, thy, thee, etc., are singular. The Y pronouns are plural. Right? So that, that's a good benefit there. Anyway, but so the significance of these angels, right? Number one, again, I believe he's speaking about, we could say, pastors of the uh, because they fit the criteria of what is being communicated to these angels and then to the churches. And then, obviously, you, could, you see the idea of privilege, right? These stars, angels, pastors are positioned where? In the Lord's right hand in the vision. The right hand always speaks of authority, power, and privilege. Uh, now, again, 
Keep all of that in context, okay? Uh, pastors are popes, <laughs> and so on. Uh, but pastors do have an important position and role in the Lord's churches. We've seen some of that in the study of the as well. Right? So just uh, keep that in mind there. There's one other... Later, I spent too much time on the first part, but um, I think for sake of time, we'll just pause here and pick up on that, finish this out next time, uh, because I don't want to hurry with this next part, because I think it's very important for when we get to these individual letters, all right? Um, so we'll, we'll uh, get back to that next time. So... Um, Anybody have any questions on that that concept, what we were looking at today with the, the stars, the, the angels, the human beings? Uh, again, I think you could appropriately say the pastors. They would have been the ones who delivered that message personally to the church after getting it, right? Um, I, I think it fits the whole context from, again, verse, one, verse 3 of chapter 1, he that readeth, they that hear, right? All the way through, I think it fits the, the context properly. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and uh, Lord, help us as we get more into the book of Revelation here. Now we're getting started to get traction, get, getting into uh, really this next section is very important for your churches today. And I pray that you help us to uh, give these things very, very close attention, especially heed. So please work in our hearts and lives. Again, please help all those that are sick and confirmed this morning. Please work in their hearts, lives, and bodies.